Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. We begin a new week on Political Rewind, and very happy to have all of you with us. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm very excited about the show that we have been given an opportunity to present to you today. I want to introduce our guest in just a moment, but first let me, of course, welcome my Monday and Friday partner, my colleague, my friend, Jim Galloway, the uh, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read his column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper And, of course, he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Jim, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Had a good weekend. Uh, uh, Disturbing in many ways, but still, you know, in this little little cubicle of mine, it was all right. Well, we're going to talk, um, uh, as the week goes on, we'll talk about a lot of the things in politics that I'm sure we all have had some questions about over the last few days. But today we're going to focus on global public health and uh, the pandemic that we're struggling with right now. And I'm very pleased to welcome our special guest, uh, truly one of the giants in the world of global public health, Dr. Bill Fage. Dr. Fage was credited back in the 70s with being the public health worker who devised and executed the plan that once and for all eradicated smallpox. He went on to be the director of the Centers for Disease Control under President Carter. Uh, He started with President Carter and served from 1977 through 1983. He then co-founded what is now known as the Task Force for Global Health, which is a global organization, uh, one of the largest in the world, fighting uh, disease and protecting people in underserved uh, uh, countries around the world. Um, Beyond that, Dr. Fage has um, worked with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He uh, helped them develop the strategies that Bill and Melinda Gates were going to follow for years to come and continue to do so. Um, Bill Gates said this about Dr. Fage. Quote, his intelligence, leadership, and humility over the last six decades have proven invaluable in the fight against disease and poverty in the field of global health. He is a giant. Um, And then more recently, Jim Curran, uh, who runs the Rollins School of uh, Health at Emory University, who was on the show just a week ago, said this about him. He said, Bill Fage is one of those rare individuals who combine brilliant science with a moral vision that inspires everyone around him to work harder and accomplish more. And just to put a finishing touch on this, in 2012, President Barack Obama awarded Bill Fage the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor that an individual can receive. I should point out, I think Bob Dylan was uh, in your class in the Presidential uh, Medal of uh, Freedom. Isn't that right, uh, Dr. Fage? That's correct, as was John Glenn. Not bad. Um, so, Bill, you and I am, you know, an enormous admirer of yours. You and I have known each other for quite a long time. And so I was really thrilled when over the weekend you sent me what is now known as the Framework for Equitable, equitable Allocation of COVID-19 Vaccine. You worked with a group of, I think, 18 professionals over a period of two months at the direction of the National Institutes of Health to develop this distribution 
plan. And one last thing, and I want to turn it over to you. Your co-chair on this, we should point out, was Dr. Helene Gale, who's pretty well known to those of us in Georgia uh, for her years as the president and CEO of CARE and for having worked at CDCs for many years before that. Have I got that right? That's correct. But she also worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation before going to CARE. Ah. Okay. Okay. So uh, would you start by just telling us what was your charge from the National Institutes of Health in when you brought together this group to look at distribution of a vaccine? CDC and NIH asked the National Institutes to come up with a plan on how to allocate the vaccine when it became available. And they were interested both domestically and globally what should be done. But to go beyond that and look at the administration of the vaccine, and I should point out that this was done in two months and one week after the first meeting of this group. It could not have been done before Zoom. Think of it. If we had had to meet and people would have to come in for hotels and, and meals and transfer, all of that, and if you had to meet four or five times, you could not have done that over two months. And so Zoom, for all of the problems, it really did speed up this entire process. So we had 18 people selected by the National Academies, and they came from various uh, places, ethicists and uh, public health people, to be sure, but many other groups. And as I said the other day, 18 opinionated people, and yet they came together and agreed on things. From the beginning, we decided we cannot have a minority report. We're not the Supreme Court. And so we have to either agree on things or not put them into the report at all. But we agreed on things. And it was quite a wonderful uh, experience to see how people came together. They worked so hard over two months. And the uh, academies put up a staff group that worked even harder. They were working day and night weekends, just continuously. And I'd like to uh, say, as I did on Friday when we released this, years ago, I gave a talk to the state health officers. And afterwards, one health officer asked me, could you tell us what is the philosophy behind public health? And how does it differ from the philosophy of medicine? And I said, my understanding is that the philosophy of science is to break down the walls of ignorance, to come up with truth. That's what NIH is about. The philosophy behind medicine is to use that truth for every patient. The philosophy behind public health, use that truth for everybody. So social justice is really the philosophy behind public health. And this 18 person committee went from trying to use the best science to ask how to use it in with social justice, how to use it with equity. Yeah. And, go ahead. You, I'm sorry. No, no, I apologize. I don't want to interrupt you, except I think you're good, about to make a point that I think is really important. You, the foundation of this entire uh, report is um, not on science and medicine. You say that it started with ethics and equality. That's right. And most uh, committees that I've been on, you do the science first, 
And then you come back and ask, how do we make sure we, we have an ethical framework? This group started with ethics and equity and asked, how do we make sure that happens? And then they went into the science. So it was quite a unique approach to things. Jim? Uh, yeah, if, if you could uh, just kind of give us an outline outline of of what happens next. Well, first of all, I mean, this is all about distribution. So first we have to have a vaccine to distribute, I, I take it. Uh, uh, we have been uh, in, 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 in our in our political uh, role, we've been told we've been told that, you know, this could come by Election Day. I, I think everybody else, uh, everybody is pretty much assuming that that's not going to happen. But what's the what's the lag time between us knowing a vaccine is actually there and and then making the first first uh, the first batch of uh, of 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 this stuff that uh, gets sent to whoever it gets sent to? Well, we started just in a sea of uncertainties, and uh, the preface starts with a quotation from Richard Feynman, the physicist, that certainty is the Achilles' heel. Of science, but we started out with uncertainties. We didn't know when the vaccine would come out. We didn't know how many vaccines. We didn't know how good the vaccines would be at different ages, and we still don't because none of the phase three studies in this country have enlisted anyone under the age of 18. So we won't know what to do about uh, young people and children, and we won't know what happens to people in my age group in the in the mid 80s. It'll take a while to figure that out, but the logistics are going to be horrendous. The first two of the four vaccines that will probably come out have to be kept cold at minus 80 degrees centigrade. That's over minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. There aren't many places equipped to keep something that cold. How do you actually transport it? It means that the, these first vaccines could probably only be given at medical centers. It's not something you could do at pharmacies or in immunization mm -hmm. clinics. So the logistics will have to go from the HHS, CDC, to the states and the counties to figure out how to actually do this. So we suggest that they come up with plans, local plans, and that you depend on the system that's already there. Don't start a new system. The system we have now started in 1955 when the first polio vaccine uh, was approved. And uh, the Senator Lister, uh, Lister, Lister Hild, came up with a plan to have the federal government buy vaccine for children of this country. That was the beginning of our federal immunization program. It's developed better and better over the years. And by the time we had the H1N1 scare, it was so good. But by now we had commercial help. That is, we had overnight commercial uh, UPS and Federal Express that the hundreds of thousands of shipments that they made directly to the people that needed them. So we said, make sure you use the system that's already in place. Don't try to come up with a new system. It's too yeah. complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, Bill, I want to, I want to say, Jim, Jim, let me just uh, jump in for a sure. second. Bill, your your group came up with a four phase approach to how the vaccine will be distributed, um, and and it would be great if you would, you know, take us through what phase one, for instance, uh, 
is mindful of the necessity of healthcare workers, first responders, uh, for instance, to get first crack at this vaccine, but it also is mindful of what you just said, that the first vaccines are likely to need to be stored in facilities that can accommodate the very, very cold temperatures that are required, which is why hospitals and medical centers uh, will begin the inoculations of their people. Is that a fair way of saying it? That's, that's correct. And while we talk about equity, and no person is more important than another person, some positions are more important than other positions. And so a person working in an emergency room has to be kept safe because they're taking care of new people coming in downstream. They're taking care of people that don't have COVID-19. And so we start out with that first group of the uh, medical workers and the first responders. And then we go to a 1B group, which would include older people with, uh, with uh, comorbidities of one kind or another. But then we make a distinction between race and racism. I think people expected us to say, because this disease hurts the minorities more than the majorities, that we would put them first in line. And instead, what we said is, this virus does not recognize skin color at all, but it sure does recognize vulnerabilities. And so let vulnerabilities be the reason that we put people in line first. And those vulnerabilities are of two kinds, personal ones, people who have comorbidities, and social ones, people who have to live at home with three generations, have to leave the house in order to work, have to take public transportation and, and so forth. And so I think we came up with a good balance of saying it's racism, not race, that is the problem here. Uh, but we've got to take a break. You know, the GPB is in a pledge period. We've been, fortunately, Political Rewind has been uh, working with our management team. They know how important subjects like this are to our listeners. So we're taking one pledge break in this entire show as opposed to the four we normally would. We're going to do that right now and come back with more with Dr. Bill Fagey and our good friend Jim Galloway. Here's how you can help support what we do here at GPB. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind, and thanks to our team for uh, limiting us to that one pledge break. It is important that you support GPB Radio. We get our, we do what we do, thanks to listener contributions. But we now have continuing a really important conversation. Our special guest, Dr. Bill Fagey, who has just co-chaired the working group that put together the what is now called the Framework for Equitable Allocation of COVID-19 Vaccine. I think we're one of the first mainstream news organizations in the country to uh, be uh, uh, talking about just what their uh, group came up with. Jim Galloway joins me as well. I want to turn it over to you in a second, Jim. But before I do, Dr. Fagan, we talk about uh, the first of four phases that you've devised with your committee for distribution 
how and the, the first phase, how many doses in that first phase? And then overall in the four phases, how many doses do you envision? In the first phase, we're thinking that there will be 15 million people, therefore 30 uh, million doses, because this will probably be a two-dose vaccine, which is also part of the uncertainty. One of the four vaccines will require only a single dose, and it will only require refrigeration, not even freezing. So this is part of the uncertainty. But a word on phrases, phases. We came up with that because... Most people talk about tiers, who's the first tier, second tier, and a tier gives me the feeling of someone above me that has a preference for the vaccine holding me down. A phase is someone ahead of me who has a reason for getting the vaccine first, but is pulling me along. So the, the two don't make, there's no difference between it, except it feels better with phases. So we see maybe 30 million doses in that first phase. But what we're counting on is that there will be, after the first vaccines, a pretty fast ramp up of vaccines, not only with each manufacturer, but all of a sudden we may have three or four vaccines competing with each other. And uh, so uh, the the idea of how fast will we get through phase two, where we start looking at school teachers and staff and even prisoners. And there may be some pushback from people who don't want prisoners vaccinated before other people. The fact is prisoners do not have mitigating circumstances. They can't stay six feet apart, that the situation puts them at high risk. And so we came to the decision after looking at how do we divide people up? Well, what we did was we decided to look at what's their risk of getting infection? What's their risk, if they do get infection, of being hospitalized, being put on a ventilator, dying? What's the risk of them transmitting the disease to someone else? And then what are the mitigating factors that could be applied short of vaccine? When this vaccine comes out, it will not supplant other things. You will still have to use masks and distancing, wash hands. Why? Because even if you have a vaccine that's 70% effective, it means 30% of the people will not be protected, but they won't know if they're in the 30% or the 70%. They have to continue on as if they are not protected, which means wearing masks and washing hands and distancing. So. Those are some of the unknowns. But I think once we get to phase two, there will be such a fast increase in vaccines that we will move quickly through phase two into phase three and then finally into phase four. Phase four is a catch-up group, everyone that's not been done before. And my own feeling is with all of the hesitancy, and there's going to be a lot of hesitancy, a high percentage of Americans say they will not take the vaccine, and an even higher percentage of minorities say they will not take the vaccine. And I understand that hesitancy, but I suspect that people who are hesitant in the first and second and third phases, once they see this vaccine is actually working and protecting people, they may then decide to change their mind, and so they will still be caught up in the, in the fourth phase, the last phase. Dr. Feige, um, um, 
I'm just starting to be uh, to, to to kind of appreciate uh, a line in one of your writings that says the uh, developing the vaccine is the easy part, uh, getting it out to people is is the hard part, and and it, it just it, it strikes me that that this phase four that you were talking about, where, where the, the cleanup group, if you if you will, that's go- that's going to force us to confront uh, a whole lot of social and political issues because your your point is you cannot leave any specific group of people out uh right now we have undocumented wor- workers who are barred from any kind of federal assistance uh they can and if if this vaccine is applied they can't be exempt they, they we we can't we can't ignore them we have to get to them uh this, uh, you you had mentioned prisons the same way uh, uh you can't ignore them uh how do you? I mean, am I right about this? And and how do you get? I was. I think if I remember right, you you said something very interesting about nursing homes, where we've had so many so many de- COVID deaths, that uh, the plan is not to necessarily inoculate the 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 senior citizens there, but to make sure that the workers get the virus, the the vaccine. Excuse me. Get the vaccine. Jim, some of this doesn't make sense at first, but the models certainly show that you save more lives if you have a shortage of vaccine by vaccinating the workers at nursing homes rather than the residents. And the reason is many of these workers work at more than one place. They have two jobs and they go from one place to another and they become the spread the spreaders then. And it's a bit like surveillance containment in smallpox, except this is in a group. We do surveillance and containment around a group. But so the workers end up in phase 1A with all other health workers, while the residents themselves uh, may be in 1B or 2, depending on how many comorbidities. But yes, this goes from being a scientific problem to being a social problem. And I am concerned that the groups that would most benefit from the vaccine, which would be the minorities, are the ones with the most hesitancy. There was one member of our committee, Reed Tuxen, who's been working on this, and his idea for the uh, African-American community, get the four black medical schools to join up with the black churches, to join up with the National Medical Association and become a trusted group that the minority community can go to for information. So this is all gonna require uh, transparency. And one of the first lessons you learn in disease control is you need to know the truth. And to know the truth just requires transparency. So yes, your point is right that Doing the vaccine, it's not easy, as you can see, but there are 150 different vaccines now in some stage of development around the world. I mean, think of that. It's just, it's mind-boggling. And yet the hard part will be to actually get that vaccine into people. You know, Dr. Feggy, um, one of the interesting points I think you make is um, that you, you said right before we went on the air that uh, you would put yourself in phase four 
Um, I mean, there could be an argument made that you're you are such a colossal force in global public health that we'd want to protect you more quickly than other people. I'm you're, you're a little older. I'm a little older. We both have some comorbidities, um, but we're in phase four largely, you say, because we are we are fortunately able to work from home, can interact minimally with the outside world if we choose to. And that's all part of how you've looked at this plan, which is to look at the social factors as well as the medical factors. That's right. Mitigating factors would put me into phase four, but I would have to put myself there because the public health service would be putting me in, a, in an earlier group. But yeah, that's how complicated yeah. this is. And uh, I'm just amazed, even at this point, that we could get 18 people in two months to agree to these things, because some of them don't make sense on the, on the surface. And particularly, people were expecting us to come out with, if you're a minority, you're first in line. If you're old, you're first in line. And we didn't do that. They didn't expect us to come out with a strong statement on global aspects of this, that we're part of the globe, and we have to rejoin that committee, that uh, community. So uh, in two months for people to come to agreements on, on these things, that was a pretty high order. You're, uh, I think you're talking about a universe of something like 100 million doses as a starting point over, what, the next year plus uh, as the vaccines begin to roll out? Well, I am hoping that we will actually see vaccine at, by the end of this year. I don't know that that will happen, but if not, it'll be soon after the first of the year. And I'm hoping that we have at least 60 to 100 million doses so that we get through uh, much of the first phase. The framework doesn't change no matter how fast or how slow the vaccine comes out. The framework stays the same. And if we have, for instance, 30 million doses, we have to save back 15 million of those so that the first 15 million people get two doses. We don't do anybody any good if we do a partial immunization program, give them a first dose and then give a first dose to other people. So if we have 15 million people at the front of the line, we have to have 30 million doses in order to do that correctly. And Dr. Fagin, um, this, 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 uh, your presence here, on 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 this on, on this on political rewind is 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 significant uh we have not had an opportunity to really go into detail on 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 the vac on 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 covid on the vaccine or on the dis on distribution with with governmental officials it's i mean getting information out of the governmental agencies has just been it's 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 been something of of uh of a of a hall of mirrors but this is this is new. This is this is something happening that's different. Uh, why why now? Well, I tell public health students you have a hard time separating public health from politics because every public health decision is ultimately based on some political decision, and if nothing else, the political uh, appropriation of money is what funds most of public health. So. One has to to put the two together, public health and politics. And I think this was one of my biggest mistakes early on, is I did not appreciate how important it was to understand the politics of this. I just assumed if you come up with a good idea, 
that the political people will fund it. It's not true. And I used to get very upset when there would be a decision made that was not a good public health decision. And my deputy, Bill Watson, said to me one day, well, it's all your fault. And I said, what do you mean? He said, if you had just anticipated the information they needed before they made that decision, wouldn't they have made the right decision? Well, I believed him at that time. I don't anymore, but I believed him at that time. And so we put a lot of effort into trying to educate politicians. But what happens, the turnover is so fast. And so I went to the next step of encouraging public health students, think about going into politics. That's the way we would change this. If public health people become as big a force as lawyers in the, on the political scene, that this would be important. So it's always been important. It, there's always been political pressures on CDC, for instance. When I was there, there was quite a bit of uh, political pressure on AIDS and what information CDC could put out. There was political pressure when we decided to put out information that aspirin could, in fact, be the wrong thing to give children if they've had chickenpox or flu, that it could lead to a syndrome called Rye syndrome, which was very uh, serious. Mm -hmm. And the White House pushed back and told us that we couldn't do that. We did it anyway. We just simply put out the information because that was the right thing to do and then accepted the, the uh, criticism that we got from government. But we've never seen anything like the political pressures of today. And it hurts me greatly to see what's happened to public health because of that. It just does not make sense that people make decisions that are actually harming uh, the, the public. It's, you may remember the book, The Guns of August. And one of the themes was, why do governments or individuals make decisions that are not in their best interest? And you have to ask that question all the time. Why is this government making decisions not in its best interest? And so I think part of the reason is, and now I'm going way out on a limb, I think for the last year or two, the White House has had problems actually hiring the best people. And so we end up with people like Dr. Atlas, who are recommending using herd immunity as the approach to this outbreak. That's not something any public health person would have done. And yet he has the ear of the president. So we're getting decisions made that are not in our best interest. I, I want to uh, pursue that. We're going to have to take a 30-second break in just a minute. But, but before we talk a little bit more about, about that aspect of your work, I, I want to follow up real quickly on something you said a little while ago. That even with a vaccine, we should expect 70% efficacy. So only 70% of the population uh, will be uh, pr protected pretty much. How does that compare to, the, to an, an average year of flu vaccine, just to give us some comparison? Well, um, with the 70%, that was my figure. The FDA actually says they will license a vaccine if it appears to have 50% protection, so even less. The flu vaccines vary uh, over the years, but they're oftentimes in that same neighborhood of 60% or 70%. Okay. And so uh, unlike measles vaccine, for instance, which is about 95% <coughs> effective, or smallpox vaccine, which was close to 100% effective. So 
these are some of the variables and the uncertainties that the committee had to deal with. Okay, um, thank you. I, I get it. Measles, vaccinations, smallpox, that makes more sense as a comparison. Let's do this. We're going to take a 30-second break um, and be right back with more with Dr. Bill Fagey and uh, Jim Galloway. Bill Fagey, back in 1991, you were asked by the New School of Social Research to be uh, on a uh, one of a number of uh, people who presented on uh, uh, plague, uh, the histor- history of plague, how plagues have been dealt with. Um, and you just recently updated that to take in uh, COVID-19. And, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the conclusions you reached 30 years ago and then Uh, how it's been updated. And here's my favorite sentence in the entire uh, presentation. We are experiencing a remedial tutorial in humility. We live with a hope that COVID-19 will lead to a better public health infrastructure. I think that's built a remedial tutorial in humility. And yet that's not how the political leadership has dealt. They certainly have not dealt with this with humility. Well, they seem to have a different view of what, how you measure success. And uh, success means to talk over the public health people and say, we're doing a great job. And, you know, it is humbling. Uh, I often have told people in the past coming from other countries to study our system, to learn about the uh, health system in the, in the United States. I say, why are you coming here? Why don't you go to a country that has success? And in our country, even though we spend twice as much money per capita as anyone else, if you look at health outcomes, we're not in the top five countries in the world. We're not in the top 10. We're not in the top 20. And that's humbling. Well, now we're finding ourselves in the same position in public health. We've always been seen as the leader in the world, that we have a public health structure that can uh, actually Uh, approach a problem like this and do the right thing. And here, all you have to do is compare us to the rest of the world, and we've done a terrible job. So this isn't success at all. You know, uh, Dr. Fege, citing that same piece, you you say there are are two ways you can go about this. You can can control the virus, uh, or you can create the illusion of control. Uh, and, and, And I think we've opted for this latter. That's right, and somehow the virus isn't going along with that. It just continues on as if uh, we haven't said anything. And it is part of what happens, I think, in government, and we've mentioned this just at the edge, that power does corrupt people. And it corrupts people in the sense that they don't think that the rules apply to them. And I think that's what happens with our government. They don't think the rules apply, and therefore they can go without masks, that nothing can actually hurt them. And what we have seen in the last week is, no, everyone's subjected to the same rules of virus spread, and that we do need to follow the rules of of masking and so forth. So uh, I now have to ask people coming to this country to study public health, why would you come here? Why don't you go to a country that's actually succeeded? Let's pick up on what you just said, because that was one of the things that was so interesting in this presentation that you gave. 
You say that you looked at studies which show when people deal with health risks, uh, maybe plague, that, that the amount of control that a person felt during a, 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 a faced with an illness or, or a, a risk factor for uh, health um, changed the perception of that risk. People will accept high risks with cigarette smoking, fast driving, drug use, et cetera, you say, if they have control of placing themselves at risk, but will reject even small or non-existent risks such as food additives, fluoridation, et cetera. But, but then you uh, give us an example. Um, you say that the early mountain men of 160 years ago went west. Um, some 50% of them died. And the people going west knew that, and yet their belief was that they themselves could control the things that caused that risk. You say the same thing about cigarette smokers, who we know can add years to their lives because they somehow feel they can control their risk. Not only does that seem to have been how the, uh, the, the Trump White House has handled the virus, it's now how President Trump himself has dealt with a virus that he has now succumbed to. Yep. Uh, power does funny things to people, and it makes them immune to the usual rules in their own mind. But it's it's not it's not true. And another book that I like is called Ladder of Bones. And it's a book about the British going to Africa and how fast they died from yellow fever and malaria. And yet they kept going, because if you were the uh, subordinate in a company, you knew your boss was going to die in a year or two and you were going to be promoted. And and so you would think that makes no sense. If you know that, why would you put yourself in that position? Well, you thought you could keep from getting yellow fever and malaria. So this uh, illusion of power is is a uh, is a bad thing. Um, let's also uh, let, let's talk about some of the lessons that you say remain pertinent in terms of plague um, pandemic. You say, let me just run through a couple of them, and, and you tell me which ones are more. A single person should be in charge. Know the truth. Surveillance provides the truth. Coalitions are essential. Uh, and then you go on and add other ones. Um, how many of those do you think we've uh, been able to follow in terms of dealing with the pandemic today? Well, I think we've taken each one into consideration and violated it. Right from the beginning, the number one, know the truth. Uh, we don't know the truth because we keep being told different things. And one of the things that bothers me about CDC and the way that political pressures have kept them down is when Americans want to know the truth, they now go to a university or they go someplace else for the truth. They don't go to CDC. This wasn't true in past years. And it shows how fast the political uh, pressure can change the reputation of an institution. So know the truth. Number two, you have to have a good surveillance system in order to know the truth. And you maybe remember there was a time when the White House said everyone in the hospitals will now report directly to us rather than to CDC. And they found in a short period of time that they could not handle this. They did not have the system. And they went back to, to uh, CDC because they didn't have experience in surveillance systems, and CDC did. 
the coalitions. You simply need good coalitions, and you need a federal plan. I don't. I can't remember a time when we've had a disease outbreak problem where you didn't have a federal plan working with the states. In this case, we've had no federal plan. We've had 50 states trying to figure it out for themselves, oftentimes competing for supplies. And so that has been a problem. You have to work with the global community. Uh, on a selfish basis, what would happen if none of our vaccines worked and we had to go on the world market to buy them? And how do you think the world market would consider us coming if we have not been part of the world community? We just simply have to be working with WHO in order to keep getting information in. Yeah, uh, Bill, Bill, we're, I, I we're starting to run short on time, but go ahead, Jim. I will, I will cut short. Uh, I, I will. I will cut very quickly to the the last uh, list on this uh, uh, ten, ten item list. Uh, with political will, anything is possible. Without it, is nothing is. Uh, that's uh, that's very telling, I think. It is. And, you know, uh, President Carter is one of the people that taught us this, that when we had all kinds of disease programs in Africa and around the world, we used to have to go and deal with the Minister of Health. President Carter would go and deal with head of state, and suddenly you would get political will, and it would change everything. Without political will, you just can't go forward. Um, Bill Fage, uh, a couple of quick last observations. Number one, I think it's incredibly important to say that your committee uh, recommends that this vaccine, when it becomes available all the way through phase four, should be made available for no cost to any of the people who take that va uh, that vaccine, correct? Correct. That's, there's enough hesitancy now. If you put one more barrier, and particularly in front of poor people, they're not going to be able to do this. It, so it it, we provided the money, government that is, to have the vaccine produced. We have to find a way to make sure that it doesn't cost anything out of pocket for the person getting the vaccine. Dr. Bill Fage, um, we're out of time. It's been a real honor to have you join us for uh, today's show. I appreciate having you here uh, greatly. I know Jim Galloway does too. So um, thank you. And we're so grateful to you that you continue five plus decades later to uh, lead us in uh, terms of uh, thinking clearly about public health. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to say goodbye. Take care. Stay healthy. Yes, wear a mask and go get a flu shot. And here's how you can help GPB. Goodbye, everybody.